Welcome to the Accessible Yoga Podcast, your weekly source for questions and answers around equity in yoga, hosted by Jeevana Heyman and Amber Carnes. Join us each week for powerful conversations with thought leaders at the intersection of justice, knowledge, and practice. Welcome to episode eight. I'm your host, Amber Carnes. In this episode, Sham Ranganathan and Jeevana have a discussion about yoga philosophy through a South Asian perspective. They explore the various ways that Western imperialism shows up in the way we interpret and practice yoga, what the Yoga Sutras and the Gita both say about our responsibility when it comes to other people, what we like to call social justice, and how translations, interpretation, and a Eurocentric bias can completely change the context and the meanings of the teachings. This is a really rich conversation. Hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Hi, this is Jeevana, and welcome to our podcast. Uh, I want to say hi to Sham Ranganathan. How are you? Hi. Hi. Thanks for being here. How are you doing? Thanks for having. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk to you. I've just I've been um, seeing more of your work recently, actually online. I know you just did a webinar um, for Yoga Alliance, and um, I was just excited to see that you've been talking a bit about um, you know yoga and social justice, yoga philosophy and social justice. But before we get into it, I guess could you tell us a bit about yourself and and your background? Sure. So. Um, uh, I have an MA in South Asian studies and an MA and PhD in philosophy. Um, and uh, I got really interested as a graduate student in what seemed like a really bizarre lopsided study of South Asia, um, which departed from the normal practices and in, in how you would study philosophy. So normally when you study philosophy, you try to understand other people's reasons for their conclusions. But I, what I found in the academic study of South Asia is that everybody kind of assumed some unarticulated Western perspective and then tried to understand South Asia as a, by matching it with what they already assumed was the right answer to every question, which seemed like bizarre and discriminatory and just a radical departure. So after after dealing with the so apparently academics well when i started all of this academics were of the view that there was no history of moral and political philosophy in south asia which is mind-blowing if you are if you grow up in a south asian uh family or home that people are obsessed with moral and political questions and it's everywhere in the literature if you you can't read a story from the piranhas or a story about incarnations of Vishnu without running into issues of justice. It's, they're always, they're always the main, the main issue. So, uh, so I, I started there in South Asia and then I did my PhD. Actually, I didn't do my PhD, um, uh, on South Asia. I, I, I went back to philosophy, which is basically means Western philosophy in most departments. And I wrote my dissertation on translating, uh, moral philosophy across traditions and I took up the challenge of translating the Yoga Sutra then because I was actually asked to teach um, some students at an Ayurveda school the Yoga Sutra and I couldn't stand any of the translations so I kind of applied my what I was developing what would seem like the best practices for translation that I was defending my dissertation to translating the Yoga Sutra and so that ended up being published by Penguin 2008 Oh, it's wow. in the Black Classic series, P- Patanjali's Yoga oh. Sutra. Okay, and I then I just kind of settled into um, – I defended my PhD in analytic and continental – was basically analytic philosophy, but it it ranged over like Western philosophy and translation studies. And I got settled into my 
uh, into teaching philosophy. Um, it was became my full time gig, and um, a couple of things happened. My earlier book from my MA in South Asian Studies on ethics, which was kind of not a mature piece of work, but it was it it, it earned me a name as a as a guy who wrote on ethics and Indian philosophy. So I was mm-hmm. asked, so I was then asked by uh, leaders in the field to do more work. And then, you know, next thing you know, it about what, 12 years pass passes. And I'm like the guy who writes on moral and political philosophy in the South Asian tradition. And um, while well, I'm certainly the only one that I know of that has kind of done about across multiple volumes and, and books. And so I was just kind of happy well, not happy, but I was, I had gotten used to just being an academic. And um, my wife said to me, you know, you should really, you should really share some of this stuff with people who aren't in academia. So then I started yoga philosophy, which is a a yoga philosophy school for people who practice yoga. Um, and in the time, I guess, between translating the Yoga Sutra and coming to this, mm-hmm. uh, yoga itself started to really take up a huge part of my life one day i woke up and i i realized i was a practitioner of yoga as potentially teaches it and so uh, uh-huh. i'd become a scholar practitioner and so it just seemed like a a good thing to do uh you know to shit to share the kind of the, the research-based stuff that i that i know about yoga with people outside mm-hmm. the university and who are practicing you, when did you start the yoga philosophy was that was that an online school originally yeah. or that's right. So you can. Um, so I started yoga philosophy last year. Um, so it would have been what 2019, and um, and so I had a I had a peculiar distinction of being relatively well known in the academic world. So if you if you do stuff on Indian philosophy. Uh, you my name will will be familiar, but outside I'm kind of you know I'm, I haven't. I haven't gotten kind of classical yoga teaching the way most people do through yoga studios mm-hmm. and asana teachers. And so, uh, I, and you know, though I've, I have have, I do have friends who are yoga teachers and very involved in yoga education. I, I haven't really been up until recently. So then the first year was a little, you know, just coming out as my coming out as a guy who does this. <laughs> and so uh, if you're interested, you could go to yogaphilosophy.com. That's my webpage where uh, you can find out more information about the school, the Yoga Philosophy School. And in the meantime, uh, Yoga Philosophy has become a YSEP, a Yoga Alliance Continuing Education Provider. And we're actually an accredited yoga school in Canada for the huh. Canadian Yoga Alliance. So uh so wow, that, that's, that's yoga philosophy. But, you know, one of the really cool things about all of this is meeting people such as yourself who are like who are pra- practicing yoga and interested in these very topics that I've, mm-hmm. I've been working on for a while. So I'm excited to talk about this. Yeah, I'm excited, too. But just tell me. So the timing, though, seems great. I mean, you had started this online school and then um, COVID happened. Right. And everyone went online anyway. But you were, <laughs> you were already online. Yeah. Well, I was I was an early adopter. So in the university itself, for years, I had been uh, using technology in the ways that I thought were positive. So I moved to what's called the flip model, where you where you don't lecture in class, so lectures delivered via video, and students view that on their mm. own time. And then class is just about interaction, mm, which is right. really the best way to 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 structure it. Because you know, when people come into a lecture, they 
and then you ask them, what do you think? Like they haven't had time to process. So there's actually a way to use the online delivery medium sensibly to, for educational purposes. And so I'd already been working on that, like in my day job. And so then I, it was relatively easy to transition, uh, you know, when I started yoga philosophy and then absolutely when uh, COVID happened and everybody went online, I was there. And um, for the first little while, I was giving away yoga philosophy courses for free. There was at one point I'd given away 300 subscriptions to my my intro, my basic, my kind of my main intro to yoga philosophy course, um, mm-hmm. because there was a while where people were just they didn't know what they were what to do with themselves. They didn't know how things right. were going to, and they and even if they had money, they were scared to spend it. And so for a while there, I was it was uh, it was wild. It was a great experience. I couldn't do it forever, unfortunately, but yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah but it was it was. Uh, it was, you know, there was a lot of energy. I, I found that, like, you know, there are people who who really want to take their practice to a next level by being grounded in something scholarly yeah. while also committed to these, you know, social justice issues. So that was, yeah. you know, and it all, it of course, all came together because not only was there COVID, there was also, uh, you know, the issue of systemic racism came to um, right. the surface in a way that it hasn't in, I don't know, maybe since the 60s or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was all it was all very, uh, you know, interesting timing for this work. Yes. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just, you know, so excited to see that focus in your work that that um, what you call moral philosophy. Is that what you're calling it? I mean, yeah, it's just... that's just a technical. So uh, so. Uh, so the words morality and ethics, it depends who you ask. Um, it, most people in, the, in, in, in academia, you use this interchangeably. Hegel is famous for drawing a distinction. Some people don't realize that it's Hegel's distinction, but they think there's a real in, in, important difference. But moral philosophy or ethics is the, same, um, is the same topic that would have been talked under dharma in the South Asian tradition. So when yeah. South Asian philosophers disagreed about dharma, they were yeah. dis- disagreeing about moral moral and ethical issues and so the basic idea, the basic topic of dharma philosophy or moral philosophy is the right or the good so the right is has to do with choices and ac- activities and the good has to do with goals and what you value and so as a philosophical topic dharma mm-hmm. or moral philosophy is this investigation into the right or the good and there are so many different approaches you could take to this topic Uh, you could think that the good comes first the good is the most important thing and then once you figured out what the good is then you work backwards to what you should do to bring that about so those are Mm -hmm. usually teleological theories and they they're teleological because they prioritize the end the goal Mm -hmm. and then there are procedural theories that prioritize choosing an activity and yoga is uh, radically uh, procedural theory of uh, of dharma it's a theory that says that um, right activity as a devotion to the ideal of right uh, of right activity ishra um, constitutes a practice that if you keep at it wait so you uh, just trans- you're just translating ishvara as sure. the goal of 
Right. Say that again. <laughs> yeah. That so, I'm sorry. So, Ishra, so in the Yoga Sutra, Ishra is defined yeah. as a, the first teacher and a person. Yeah. But there's two essential characters, two essential traits to Ishra, and if you boil down the two essential traits, it's basically unconservatism and self-governance. So, mm. Ishra is the ideal of what it is to be a person because a person is something that thrives when they they aren't stuck in the past or unconservative. And they're mm-hmm. self-governing. They're free to to make their own choices. So yoga oh God, is, a, is is a practice of devotion to this ideal. And then as you as you perfect this practice, you bring about the good, which is just your own your own sovereignty. But mm-hmm. in order for this to happen, a lot has to change in the public realm that makes it possible for other people to do the same. Uh-huh. Well, I just want to stop for a second and just say how how amazing it is to even have this conversation with you because I mean, I just, this is what's been lacking for me in yoga. I mean, I feel like I'm having to make this stuff up. I don't have a background, you know, in academics. So for me, I am just a practitioner. I, I study the best I can. And this is what I'm always trying to show. And I'm actually even writing about it mm-hmm. from a personal, you know, my personal experience as a, as a activist, I was an AIDS activist for, and I still am, you know, really a, a disability activist. And, Um, you know, I get so frustrated because I think all the discussions about yoga philosophy always fall to this kind of academic kind of, I I don't know, very cold and, um, intellectual conversation. And I feel like the ethics is missing and I just, it's so incredible to hear you just what you said already. It just made me so excited. (laughs) That's Um, great. You know, even uh, to approach, but I'm just to approach yoga philosophy in that way, where it's a question of, of action, you know, right. and I, which is what yoga is about. So I just right. thank you. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> and, and I'll say one other thing, which is I'm so frustrated these days because I, I you know, following social media and actually just this morning, I, I saw a post by Sean Korn, who I really admire. I mean, she's someone who has a huge platform. Right. And she really tries to bring in social justice. And I noticed um, all of these negative comments on this. She had a very strong post, you know, about social justice today. Right. Um, and the you know these kind of like Trump supporters questioning right. her, saying yoga is not about politics and all that stuff. And I'm just <laughs> I'm so tired of that. Yeah. Well, you know, I think there's a couple of things going on. Well, there's really yeah. one main thing going on, which is Western imperialism, uh-huh. uh, and but it expresses itself in a few different ways. But there's a common theme, that is, you're not allowed to. Uh, you're not really allowed to criticize the status quo. You're not supposed to question motives or what it is that we're doing. We're all just supposed to kind of shut up and get in line. Um, and um, and and the 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 politics that ends up um, thriving is the politics of this type of collectivism. So one of the one of the things that I started to appreciate in my research is that there's this long tradition that connects contemporary intellectual activity uh, in philosophy too, and uh, ancient philosophy uh, in the Western tradition from the Greeks where thought was um, equated with language. Um, and so to be thoughtful is to be able to engage in your basically your community's uh, values and expectations. So if you think about thought as basically cultural belief, then to think is to – you have to be part of that outlook. And so thinking 
is presented as something that can't tolerate an outside view or dissent. It's it's equated with the beliefs uh, of people in this tradition. So one of the things that happens as this tradition grows, something I, I talk about in my work, is that it starts to marginalize non-Western intellectual traditions because it can't explain these. It, it ends up calling these religions. So all the things that count as religion uh, in the world today are just intellectual traditions from outside of Europe. Uh, and this kind of culminates with Western imperialism in, in Asia, where religious identity in Asia and South Asia was basically invented under the British, right? So Hinduism starts is, is an administrative category, <laughs> and it becomes, it becomes people's um, religious identity as a result of that. So, but one of the, one of the implications of that, that again, I'm not, Sorry, say just, that again? Because you're saying a lot very quickly, and I just want to, you know, my brain doesn't maybe work as fast as oh, yours. Sorry, but. I was trying to get to, I was trying to get to Sean Cohen. I, I, I just want to say, what, what, repeat what you just said, because sure. I just want to say it again, like, if, if I'm understanding it. So you're trying to say that, like, uh, you know, basically Western yoga has, you know, that the philosophy has also been, um, you know, completely reshapen by capitalism and uh, Western thought. So it's like well, not only... I'm not, okay, so I'm not sure about capitalism, but definitely, and uh, we could talk about capitalism, but... Okay, well, uh, maybe that's the wrong word, right. but I just meant our system, well, like the Western system and the way the Westerns, Westerners think. Um, right. Well, I think it's even more insidious than that. I don't think it's actually philosophy. So I think that most of what people what people call yoga philosophy isn't philosophy. And so right. here's my reason reasoning. There's there's two differing um, meanings. There's a more basic meaning and a less basic meaning of the word philosophy. So the less basic meaning of philosophy is a perspective. So this is the sense in which I have a philosophy on chewing gum or something like that, right? It's my perspective on that. And then there's the discipline of philosophy where we where we critically evaluate competing perspectives. So in order for something to to be to to be a kind of philosophy in the first sense, it has to be part of that activity of critical inquiry. But what happens under uh, and this happens very early in the Western tradition, where philosophy is persecuted, it starts with Socrates, who's put to death for questioning the values of his his society. That that in this tradition, because competing perspectives are viewed as a threat to social order, philosophy mm. is then kind of debased and turned into this account of how you see the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so this so this also continues in the academic study of South Asia, right? Because what I found was that these academics would just – well, first of all, the vast majority of academics who write on South Asian philosophy are not philosophers. They're not trained philosophers. They're usually linguists or historians. Mm-hmm. So they're amateurs. They're not even really prepared uh, to engage in this, but they, they, they end up amateurs. I like that. We'll just call them. Well, they are, they're not, they're not trained in what it is that they claim that they, they write on. Um, So I mean, they're not trained in like the thinking of it, like the concepts. It's more of just like, they're not trained in the discipline of philosophy. It would be like me teaching you chemistry. Like I know a bit about chemistry, but I'm not a chemist, right? Yeah. Uh, it would be like going to a plumber to get your teeth cleaned, right? Like the plumber knows about plumbing. Maybe he can tell you something about brushing your teeth, but like he's not a dentist. So there is, there is 
so because everything is about your perspective in the Western tradition, the idea that there's something like a practice you can specialize in, yoga, is far from the way people think about things in the Western tradition. They think it's just all about accounting for things uh, in terms of how you see it, right? So this is, of course, exactly what those people who were critis- criticizing corn, they were coming, they, you know, they wanted, they basically wanted only their own perspective to be to be articulated and if there was anything contrary to that it was to be shut down right not given not given a platform to be considered just simply not not talked about right um, and also also i think there's this kind of um yoga as escapism versus yoga right. as engaged you know as engaged practice um you know building like like you, you mentioned the word, um, like, well, moral justice or moral philosophy, right. like that's not the essence of what yoga is. It's about, it's somehow like making yourself feel better rather than like doing good, you know? Right. And I so, different things. yeah, for sure. So I think one of the things that happens, uh, as a result of this, uh, widespread imperialism is that people aren't interested in what yoga, the philosophy has to say about life they just want to appropriate the practices to what they were already committed to so if they were already committed to right being happy or escaping whatever then yoga just becomes a device to that end right and that's what i meant by capitalism yeah yeah oh i see well yeah yeah, well capitalism does tend to commodify things so so then people will be co-opted into selling this product (laughs) in a in a capitalist uh society because that's that's what people want to buy for sure yeah so um but you know i think i think really I, I, there, there's two things go. I mean, there's a couple. Of, there's some reason to feel good about this. So what? So just going back to your to your concern that you're not able to find any. Like everything seems kind of cold and and, yeah. and disconnected. So I I so while indeed that might sound like it's uh, it's academic, it's it's kind of a sham. So that's a lot of my my own published research is about how the story that we we get about South Asia is just this largely, and its philosophy is just largely this effort to uh, assume some type of Eurocentric perspective and then uh, filter um, the South Asian tradition to that. But like, what if we really just go back to these ancient contributions to philosophy and understand what they have to say about things we can disagree about? That's That's what I'm interested in. And then Mm -hmm. we can put aside what we believe in our perspectives and just learn about philosophical disagreements about how we should live. One thing that becomes completely obvious is that all of these early philosophers who are concerned with meditation or what we would call yoga or what they called yoga uh, had like very strong moral and political views about how you're supposed to live. And uh, the debate about, the boundaries between personal choice and other people like that was, that was always there from the very start. Um, And, you know, there is always this understanding that when you're choosing a practice like this, you are making a decision about a wider range of moral and political questions about how to treat other people and yourself. Right. Um, And I just say, for example, like in the Vedas, there's a lot about how you live. I mean, that's what it's mostly about. Like, um, those kind of activities of daily life rather yeah, than sure. yoga. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
So, um, so well, this was. I mean, you'd have to you'd have to have a pretty bizarre view of people to think that they didn't have views on these things. They're, people are doers, right? They have to eat, they have to sleep, <laughs> they have to take care of themselves. So these practical questions are always going to be uh, front and center. It's just that within a world of Western imperialism, you want to deny that the colonized people actually have views on this matter, right? Because the whole point of imperialism is to impose upon colonized people the view of the colonized a colonizer so and that's that's basically what's going on in most of what gets called yoga philosophy is not actually uh an informed investigation into the philosophical contributions of philosophers who were interested mm-hmm. in yoga it's more about imposing these uh these views that were developed under colonialism uh in, in you know informed very much by the European tradition on on yoga. So one of the things I point out is that a lot of the things that people think of as stereotypically yoga are better explained by Plato and Aristotle, right? Like, mm. you know, uh, and, and the goals and the concerns that people think that uh, go along with yoga are really, they're just kind of deeply Western, right? Like, you know, like the idea that you need to find some guru who's going to set up a series of challenges for you and then you have to work your way up you know, to mm-hmm. prove yourself to, to get to that person's level. That's Plato. <laughs> that's uh-huh. not potentially. Uh, uh-huh. But yet that's yeah. such a common blueprint for yoga education uh-huh. uh, in a Western world where all this idea that you have to go live on an ashram and do natural things and learn mm-hmm. to participate in the cultural sphere of, of yoga, that's Aristotle. That's huh. not potentially. So, yeah. But yet that's just such a big part of yoga marketing, right? Like go to an ashram. Mm-hmm. Live with a guru. <laughs> like yeah. all this stuff is just—it's such a joke. <laughs> it's like, but probably uh, you know the reason it gets perpetuated is that people people don't they don't think that studying philosophy is there's any value to it. So they just basically get duped by yeah. by the I, tradition. Yeah, that's amazing. I you know I'm excited to order your um, your translation of the sutras. Mm-hmm. I wish I read it before we spoke, but I'm. I'm curious about if we could talk about Patanjali's about the sutras sure. a little bit. Like, you already you already mentioned thought earlier. You talked about thought as cultural belief, and I wonder if that's if you see that in the sutras, like when Patanjali talks about thought, right? Uh, like, great. What, you, what is your like? What is your translation of of that sutra of? Okay, so, so two things. So earlier I was talking about the Western model of thinking as basically okay. cultural belief. Okay. I think – so if you take a look at yoga, it, thought is something to be controlled. So it's not something yeah. to be believed. So uh, yoga is just the vritti niroda. There's a, there's a couple of principles that I used when I was translating uh, the yoga sutra. The first was the appreciation that a yoga te- – like a sutra text – is an effort to compress lots of meanings into few words. Right. It's a device of economy. So if yeah. you're going to unleash those meanings, you can't pick and choose. You can't cherry pick what you already expected to find. You have to you have to work with the full range uh, of meanings there. And so vritti, for instance, means disturbance. So uh, yoga is chitta vritti nirosa. Yoga is Chitta vritti niroda. So chitta is like mentality or experience, thought. Mm-hmm. Vritti niroda means calming, stilling, controlling, checking. Uh, 
And then vritti is usually described as like disturbance or rolling or influence, but it also means respectful behavior mm. in proper ethical practice. It's also those are also meanings of vritti. So if you put all of this together, I translate yoga's chitta vritti nirodha as yoga is the moral constraint of thought. So, and so the entire Yoga Sutra is this medit is this elaboration on how to live the ethical life, mm-hmm. uh, and yoga practice is about that. Now, the reason why people don't see this is that they assume that ethics is defined by what Western thinkers claim it is, like Plato and Aristotle, and mm-hmm. Yoga Sutra doesn't have anything positive to say about that but if you understand ethics and morality philosophically as a disagreement about our choices or what we should how we should behave and what we should aim for then the yoga sutra is definitely a contribution to that debate yeah. right well, uh, and it's a yeah, very it's, yep it's like a conversation about or, or teachings about how to like work with your own mind so that you have less suffering and hopefully right. that you do do good in the world. I mean, it's like control yourself. You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, right. So, so the Yoga Sutra starts with the choice. It's yeah. a very basic choice, which is either yes. we understand ourselves in terms of our experiences, mm-hmm. or we see our experiences as something that we have to control. Right. So. This is a really basic choice, right? So, you know, you can imagine going for a jog and you have that experience of the wind in your face. And you have a choice to understand that wind in your face is a function of your activity. It's because you're jogging that you're having that wind Mm. in your face experience. And if you have that understanding, then you will know how to control that experience by varying your activity. Mm. Or you treat that experience as somehow disconnected from your choices and but merely a kind of fact about you <laughs> as mm. someone who has a wind in their face experience right mm. so it's the idea that we should understand our experiences as a function of choices that's yoga the reason that that's we should take that choice or we have to adopt that choice is because when is the reality is that we do have a choice, right? We can either choose to understand our experiences as autobiographical commentaries on us or as a function of our choice and activity. And so given that we have this choice, we should take the responsibility to properly influence our experiences so that we as individuals are respected, right? So the, so, so the, the, the project of yoga then is a kind of project of self-respect. Um, mm. So that you don't live a life as someone who's manipulated by your experiences and your thoughts, but rather you you are the one who influences those. But right. to move away from this kind of autobiographical way of understanding yourself is to understand yourself as someone who, who chooses and does in a public world with other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, the Yoga Sutra is filled with discussions about other people. The first other person that it talks about is Ishra. Right. This ideal of what it is to be a person that yoga practices is is devoted to. And then in book two, potentially defines uh, yoga in terms of three practices. And then he talks about the eight limbs of yoga. And the, and the first two limbs have a lot to do with other people. Yeah. Um, and in fact, and this uh, I suppose is uh, what you might be uh, interested in, or I'm guessing, um, when potentially is talking about ahimsa, the implementation of um, 
the disruption of harm, um, he knows that there will there will sometimes be um, opposition, uh, and there will what you will get is people who in return want to ad- advocate for violence, right? So when we think about the contemporary political landscape, right, there are people yeah. who want to de-escalate, <laughs> uh, confrontation, and there are people who want to escalate, right? The people who want to de-escalate want room for people to exist peacefully, and the people who want to escalate are people who who, tr- who treat that as a threat, right? They, mm-hmm. they treat peaceful protest as a threat. And potentially says there in Book Two, the Yoga Sutra, that what you need to do is you need to understand that their hostility is a response to their to past trauma, their own past trauma. Mm-hmm. And what you need to do is to continue your commitment to disrupting harm, and that has the effect of getting the other to announce their hostility. And so this is talking about like the sutra. He talks about the result of being established in ahimsa and how you'll yeah, impact exactly. others. Thirty-three yeah. to book yeah. two, thirty-three around there, and yeah. uh, that's basically the blueprint for uh, nonviolent civil disobedient protest, right? Mm-hmm. So you you yeah. confront people who are uh, advocating uh, violence by a practice based in ahimsa, and. Um, I right. noticed, and, it, it, and, I, and I, I just one last thing. I contacted a Gandhi scholar I knew, and I said, I was "Hey, did you, say, you notice that this? Like, it's in the Yoga Sutra. Satyagraha is in the Yoga Sutra." Yeah. And she went. She went ahead. She didn't know this, and she went and wrote a book on Gandhi. And apparently, Gandhi cites the Yoga Sutra ubiquitously in his collected works as the source of his political doctrines. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Gandhi very influential on later civil rights movements and and then you right. see it today in black lives matter so all of this in a way goes back to the yoga sutra yes well i mean i have a biography of him that says he he based satyagraha on um on the sutras on ahimsa good good, good. Satya, you know on those two concepts but it's funny because it does seem like he's always connected to the gita you know right <laughs> Because he translated the Gita, but I don't think he did. He translate the sutras. I never saw that. I don't I think. He, I don't. I don't know that he did. Uh, yeah. But I think the philosophy of the. I, I mean, the Yoga Sutra seems to be to be more directly. Uh, yeah. Relevant to that whole idea of mobilization. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. So let's let me just take go back to what you're saying. So you went from talking about how the sutras. I think most people. Um, when we study the sutras, we think about how, you know, how we're working with our own minds mm-hmm. uh, and there's that piece, but then you talked about where other people are involved. Yeah. So in um, a way you're also thought, working with other people's minds, right? Other people's minds, yeah. Like because, the locks and keys, right? Like, um, you know, well, like is that, you know, uh, book one, sutra 33, is it, you know, he's talking about the locks and keys. Like some people say, well, that's about working with your own mind, but also other people's minds, you know? Oh, I see. Well, the thing about mind is that, um, it's, it's, it's a phenomena. It's not so people. So the problem when we don't live yogically is we, we treat our mind as though it's something kind of private. Hmm. And what we don't appreciate is that it's just a function of our behavior in a public world. Mm-hmm. And so what we're going to be aware of and conscious of is going to be a function of our activity in a public world. But then if that's the reality of the mind as something that's that uh, 
functions in a public world, then what you do will have an impact on other people's consciousness and awareness too. I mean, that you're just like summarized what my book is that I'm writing. I'm, I mean, I'm right. You know, but I, I just thank you for that because I, you know, I've been trying to figure out how to just say that. Um, what I'm trying to talk about in my book is how, you know, yoga is social justice. You can't, you can't be a yogi and not have compassion and work for a just world. Like there's no way to work on your mind right. separate from this communal mind. It's just, it's impossible. Right. And I, and I would say that, so I guess I want to take you to like Samadhi because I feel like that's where I, I think it really shows up to me um, okay. in our misunderstanding, at least of yoga currently. And that is, I think Samadhi is perceived as like this individual experience. And I'm just thinking these days more about this communal experience of Samadhi, like how it's, you, you cannot be enlightened as an individual. Like it's more of a, it's, it's an experience of yeah. the world. You know? I think also enlightenment isn't really even a yogic worry. Um, yeah. So Buddhists worry about enlightenment. Yeah. <laughs> so the Buddha was enlightened. Samadhi yeah. is the last of the eight limbs, and it's part of a three-limb process of samyama. Yeah. Right. So that's dharana, dhyana, and samadhi. So dharana is about focus. Dhyana is the kind of the visceral yeah. movement of the experience, and samadhi is kind of being in the, it being. With, uh, in the thick of it, right? So in a way, it's the resolution of the process. And mm-hmm. samyama, the last three limbs, are limbs that you... Uh, samyama literally means with yama. <laughs> so yeah. it's something you can only do as you practice the yamas. And the yamas are totally social, right? It's it's about entering the world by disrupting harm, ahimsa, and then recognizing truth, satya, that respect other people's property, asteya, their personal boundaries, brahmacharya, and that you haven't you haven't enriched yourself by this interaction, aprigraha, right? So that's that's how the how the yogi kind of basically starts their their practice, and mm-hmm. so when you come to samyama, it's about it's about the 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 energy or the the, the possibilities of applying your focus in a public world. And, mm. but he does say that in book three, that the powers that you can gain right. from this are, are, are a distraction from Kaivalya, yeah. which is, which is your complete success as a yogi. And when you're completely successful as a yogi, you are no longer explainable by external influence. It's all about mm-hmm. choice and responsibility, which mm-hmm. is why, before you get to Kaivalya, you have the Dharma Mega Samadhi, the, the, the cleansing of, of Dharma. So mm-hmm. I, I agree with you. I mean, that these practices are about, about our relationships to other people and about how we disentangle relationships so that they're healthy and not manipulative. That's like a major <laughs> component of, of yoga. Right? It doesn't mm-hmm. mean you don't have relationships. They're just ethical relationships they're just healthy relationships right ethical relationships which i mean to me i guess i just the word i keep wanting or the phrase i go back to is social justice because i feel like it it means justice for everyone equally you know it's like i i think sometimes social justice is seen as like some kind of radical concept but i think it's just basic like um caring for others as you do for yourself um you know it's to me, that's the process that that 
Patanjali is talking about is like seeing, I guess, seeing your mind clearly enough to see how you make everything about yourself, you know, how it's where the mind just builds itself up versus seeing more clearly like everyone and seeing others, uh, seeing yourself in others too. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's the point of Ishra Pranidhana. Yes. To be to approximate Ishra is to is not to approximate yourself, but an ideal of what it is to be a person. Mm. And in being devoted to Ishra, you understand what you have in common with other people. Namely, we're all things that have an interest in our own sovereignty. Um, but you know, I social justice is a great word. I I I think it is important uh, to acknowledge that. Yoga was never an anthropocentric thing um, mm. in the South Asian tradition. So when when they talked about Purusha, uh, they weren't talking about uh, humans. They were talking about the kinds of things that would mm-hmm. thrive if they were sovereign. So, you know, we can bring into this the earth uh, in non-human animals too. It's a very important part of um, the yoga tradition. But – you know, we live in a social world with, I mean, we don't treat the earth as though she's part of our right. social world, but we should, <laughs> right? Mm. And non-human animals, but we should. So, right. um, you know, I think I think that could be a very powerful way to unlock a lot of these ideas. Yeah, that's beautiful. Wow. I, I just want you to talk more about <laughs> well it sounds like you've thought about this quite a bit so <laughs> yes, I, I feel it's so i feel frustrated it's almost like i you know i haven't had the kind of the, the background and the training and the just the mind that you have and i feel like i've had to come at this just from yeah. the, um i don't well, know you know i think that ultimately so i think that the, the vast majority of people who go get degrees and learn about these things they don't actually crack the surface they just they just use their cultural expectations Mm. as a frame and there are plenty of people with you know academic jobs who do exactly the same so my i mean what kind of what makes my work unusual is that i have come at this as as a practitioner in a way right i I first i was first a practitioner of the yoga philosophy because i was a real I was really committed to this idea that it's not about my perspective. It's about understanding and understanding. Mm-hmm. Isn't about, there was always something very deeply yogic about this, but understanding right. isn't about seeing the world from my point of view. It's right. about understanding that there are lots of points of views <laughs> and let's yeah. talk about, let's talk about their merits and their, you know, what they have going for them and what they don't. Right. That's, yeah. that's philosophy. But in order to do philosophy, you have to be committed to yoga, which is you have to get over yourself. You can't like, <laughs> Your 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 experiences are not so special or important. Okay. And, that, that's, uh, how, that's how we translate this. That's how I translate the whole of the Yoga Sutras. I say, get over yourself. Yeah, absolutely. That that is yeah. absolutely. It's not that you. It's not that there isn't a you. It's just that you should right. get over yourself, right? It's I, know. That. I I also think um, maybe we could talk about the Gita briefly because I feel like <laughs> what I struggle with a lot is you know trying to. Um, combine the the teachings from both in my mind to think right. of a larger larger concepts that come through both of those sure uh, scriptures and like i think the idea of um, karma yoga and service it's like and bhakti yoga it's like if you put it all together there's obviously a lot more heart in it a lot more love in this than i think is revealed usually in a in a study of the sutras alone like i think there's I mean, bhakti is in there, right, in in the sutras. But right. I think um, 
I don't know, the, the karma, I guess the karma yoga of the Gita, I think is like a, an important lesson. Again, like that's why I think Gandhi referred to it. It's like said very clearly to like, you know, to, to serve, you know, that's, yeah. that's the job of the yogis to serve. And I feel like I'm always trying to find the source of that in the sutras as well. Well, I think that I actually think that that's that gloss is an imposition. So if you look at the argument for karma yoga and the Gita, um, there's a little bit of the service, but you get that you get a little bit, but it's you have to really work for it because the the way karma yoga is defined is karma yoga is the practice of an activity that's that's suited to your essence, your talents, and your dispositions that you should be doing, that you have an obligation to do. And mm -hmm. in the context of the Gita, you know, Arjuna is worried that things are going to go badly because mm -hmm. he's going to fight a war and wars don't go well, right? So even for the people who win, they don't go well. And Arjuna says as much. Uh, and what Krishna does in part to respond to this concern is says, well, there's one way for you to make thing, make this go well for you is to focus on your obligation and then just don't worry about anything else. Just focus on, um, on perfecting that. Yes. And, and then he says, uh, and by the way, that's what I'm doing too in maintaining the world. Right. Yeah. And the implication yeah. is that, you know, all of us have a part to play in a bigger picture of, where there's room for a diversity of beings uh, if we do our part and our part is perfecting our own duty. So there is that. Um, but, you know, the, the idea that this is about serving is not entirely clear because, I mean, mm. and especially for instance, now Arjuna has got obligations towards the people who he leads um, I think it, I think the idea is that within the context of, a world where we all have our part to play. Mm -hmm. There's so a sense in which karma. <laughs> yeah. There's a sense in which our karma can really help be helpful. You're right. That isn't really an element in the yoga sutra because the yoga sutra is the emphasis there is about the one person revolution. Yeah. Right. So the Gita assumes that there's a kind of overarching moral harmony, uh, mm -hmm. Right, Ishra is taking care of that. Yoga Sutra doesn't have that type of um, story, right? And the focus is on your responsibility to make that real. Like, what mm -hmm. are you doing to transform your world so that people are taken seriously and their boundaries are, are respected, right? So I think so and this You're difference from the, sutras, all, the sutras is asking that question what are you yeah doing? it's really about that you and the one person revolution don't yeah. assume there's any kind of backdrop of help <laughs> <laughs> or a universe that's in order waiting for you to like find your place in it, it that's not part of the yoga sutra story it's really about what is it that you're doing to be the revolutionary origin of this transformation Mm -hmm. So I would look to the yamas then for that, for if you were, if you're looking for service, mm -hmm. right, it would certainly come there because uh, as you practice the yamas, you are committed to disrupting harm, harmful regularities, harmful practices that impede other people's well-being.
Okay, but then just going back to what you just said, so that one person revolution in the sutras, there's still that tension between others. So you're, you're just seeing others in what way then? You're seeing well, your responsibility. Others, well, yeah. your, your responsibility is to make, a, make space for other people to have the kind of freedom that you're working on. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right? So you're, you're not there to live their life for them, but as part of your practice, you have to make you. So I think this is incredibly relevant to what's going on now. Right. So do we have a responsibility to public spaces where everybody feels included and everybody is safe? Right. right. Um, so the yoga story is yes. And if some people can't participate in that, then we have to figure out what the harmful regularities are that have to be disrupted in order so you know like start concerns about accessibility could come into this too right like you know what are the regularities that prevent or discriminate people from being part of an inclusive public space so the yamas really i think speak to that concern right and then but then once once the world is safe and inclusive, then, you know, everybody has their own responsibility to live their own life. But you, we have to at least do that for ourselves and others, mm-hmm. right? Uh, make it so yeah. that there are no public or external impediments to that type of personal transformation. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love the way you're presenting it. I, I, I have been focusing a lot on that, um, you know that section in in book two before the before Ashtanga Yoga, where it's like talking about, or he he's talking about um, Viveka and you know cl- seeing clearly. That's that's kind of I think that's what you're saying. It's just like that's our job is we do all of this to to help see more clearly and clarify the way we see ourselves and then everything else. Yeah, that that, well, that, but that's just going to be a fruit of, um, you know, the activity, the commitment comes first and the clarity of experience comes later. Mm. So, um, uh, and, but, and so the reason this is important is that we have to be, we have to be first practically committed to disrupting the harm, because if we don't, we can always have some type of clear experience, but at mm. what cost, right? Um, so, you know, and this is the way a lot of people live. They, they think that, well, as long as their little corner of the world is okay. Right. Uh, and they can kind of see 10 feet in front of them okay. But, but uh, is, wait, but, so Patanjali is saying, so first he's saying, I think, what is it? In, is it, uh, you know, future pain is avoidable. Right. Uh, he's telling you then how to do that. You know, see clearly, discriminate between. Right. Spirit and nature, and then and practice. Then to have more clear vision, practice the eight limbs, and that includes uh, then this these ethical rules um, don't harm. Well, you know but the interesting so, thing. Yes, yeah. but the yamas is interesting. It's, the yamas are kind of pre yoga, so uh, the so he defines yoga in terms of uh, tapas, swadhyaya, ishra pranidhana. Uh, yeah at the start of book two. So that's yoga and practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the reason he descri- he defines that as yoga and practice is because Ishra has two main characteristics, uh, unconservatism and self-governance. So the idea is then as, as we practice Ishra Pranidhana, we also have to practice unconservatism, which is tapas, and self-governance, which is swadhyaya, 
because to self-study is to self-control. Yeah. So what we're doing is we're we're practicing the traits of being Ishra uh, when we do Tapas and Swadhyaya. Then after this, everything is an elaboration of what's involved. Not everything. Almost everything that comes afterwards is kind of an elaboration of what's involved in that practice. The funny thing about the Yamas is that the Yamas outline a list of activities you do before you get to the Kriya Yoga, mm-hmm. right? So if you look at the the, the eight limbs, the, the three Kriya Yogas and Niyamas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so even be, so there's a sense in which even before you get to what uh, you think of as yoga, you have you to do this. And he says everybody has to do it. It's not an option. Right. And then after you've kind of initiated the one-person revolution and you've started to alter public space so that people's boundaries are respected uh, and they have what they need and you haven't you know, enriched yourself from this, then you can start to practice yoga. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you get to the niyamas. Yeah, so, so in, sorry, go I ahead. Should have that earlier. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think this comes back. The the yamas, I think, kind of correspond to the way yoga is defined in book one. Okay. As yoga's chitta vritti nirodha, the yamas kind of cash out what that looks like. Uh, okay. And then, and then there's yoga as a practice, the kriya yoga. Yeah. And uh, those are the three practices. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but but the yamas are kind of pre-practice. They're 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 the kind of the 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 basic the basic infrastructure that has to be there <laughs> in order to in order to make practice even possible in a way. Right. Yeah, I mean, it seems like ethics do work that way. I mean, you know, you have to start with an ethical foundation. It's like. Um, it reminds me of you know what's happening currently where we're reading about all the sexual abuse by different gurus and right. then people say well can you separate the teacher from the teachings and it's like well actually if you know if you're not ethical then it's not yoga i mean yeah, that's i agree that's yoga like it starts with well you know I, in that case too almost in every case i've ever heard of it they've they followed a platonic model where mm. it isn't yoga it's Plato. And Plato in the Republic devises a, this idea of the community where there's it, – it's structured. There's a kind of entry level and then an administrative level and then like the leadership. Uh, and then people try and prove themselves by going through a series of hoops. And the hoops are presented as education. Mm. Uh but what they're doing is they're proving themselves as worthy of kind of participating in the administration and working their way up to leadership. But at the very top, there's an unquestioned authority yes. who's there to set uh, the content as to what's to be taught. So yeah. if you think about most structured yoga educational outfits where there's a guru, you're going to have something like this. You're going to have some entry level <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. You know, section where new students come in, and then you're going to have people who function as like, like a pyramid scheme. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Plato <laughs> thought of it first. Absolutely. <laughs> but it's only within those contexts that a leader can have that type of authority to the kind of power over other people to to yeah. to to violate their personal space, right? Because the entire structure is not about your personal boundaries. It's about your effort to try and be incorporated into something. 
pre-existing. And right, if you look at the Yoga Sutra, there's no there's no pyramid scheme. <laughs> it's it's about you and your devotion. Mm-hmm. So right, completely- yeah, absolutely. And when I think when I hear about these things, I'm like, well, that was never yoga to begin with. I see, never yoga. So you didn't you don't have to separate the teacher from the teachings because they weren't really teaching in the first place. They weren't really doing yoga to begin with. It was yeah. maybe fifty percent yoga and fifty percent something else, or yeah. You know, maybe that would be a fair fair thing to say because usually they'll say they'll talk they'll tell you a bit about the yoga sutras and stuff like that. Right. But uh, there, but the entire the entire pedagogical model uh, is not yoga. Uh, but right, yoga is, is a theory now. of learning too, right? Uh, but wait, wait, and, first, the model is not yoga because it's top down. Is that what you're saying? Because it's this hierarchy. Well, yeah, it's than- top down. It's a pyramid scheme. Yeah. It it. Prior, it gives authority to another practitioner, yep. which is not yoga. Uh, if I had to, so authority to have authorities to have power over someone without necessarily having the knowledge <laughs> to have expertise, mm. that's a yoga concern. So if I'm interested in genuine yoga education, I want to know is, is this person really an expert? That is, have they done the requisite research and study? Mm-hmm to be worth studying under, right? That's very different from having authority, like being billed as someone within a lineage or, uh, you know, who has, who's, who's known to, you know, started their own tradition of yoga or something like that. Right. Like Mm yoga has been around for thousands of years. Like (laughs) when people start their like own flavor, (laughs) I have no idea. I, I like, you really like, I, it's and I just don't know what to say. I like you really. You just you thought it was that bad. You had to start your own flavor. It's, right. And you know, not this is where the capitalism comes back in the branding and the marketing right. and the yeah, yeah. It's so funny. Um, I know your own brand, and and then you come up with your system, and you say this is the way. You know, this is the best way, and right. And you say it'll heal you it'll change you it'll do all these things to you and i think well that's not really how yoga works i mean it's that's right internal so it's up to the individual to do that work right exactly it's beautiful i mean because actually it's a very um it's incredibly empowering that way you know what i mean that's what i love about it it's like um and kind of um i don't know very democratic you know it's like yeah each can do it yeah. Radical egalitarianism goes back yeah. to this tradition, right? Because even if we're di- even if we have different capacities, and some of us are maybe smarter than others or more capable, we all have the same interests, right? And 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 so in that respect, we're all equal. Uh, you know, whether you're a squirrel or a dog or a fish mm-hmm. or a human, we all have this interest in our own sovereignty, and mm-hmm. so our own personal liberation Mm. comes from this insight of what we have in common in that respect. Right. Right. And then, but then once you're devoted to that commonality, you, you act in a manner that makes it possible for others to actualize that in their own life. That ends up being a really important part of the public activity of a yogi. And and you don't call that karma yoga. What do you call that then? that's, That's bhakti yoga. So That's the bhakti, interesting, okay. yeah. So the interesting thing in the Gita is what Krishna calls bhakti yoga is basically yoga in the Yoga Sutra. Okay. The yoga, the Yoga Sutra is anchored in Ishra Panidana. Mm-hmm. So, so that's bhakti. So karma yoga is a kind of compromise view that Krishna 
um, yeah. that Krishna tries to give Arjuna. But by the end of the Gita, he chucks it out. <laughs> so if you follow the argument long enough, he loses it. He loses. Um, yeah. And, you know, and to, to their credit, right, karma yoga is conservative because it defines your contribution in terms of hmm. supposed predispositions or genetic endowments and stuff like that, right? So like, it doesn't challenge the, the – sorry. The well, the caste system, right. So the caste system, the rationale, well, there's, I mean, there's a couple of different rationales for it. One is that, well, you know, like this, you're disposed to do this, so do this. And how yeah. do we know it's disposed to? Because your, your parent, everybody you come from did this, right? Yeah. So, yeah. um, so karma yoga then finds a way to accommodate that intuition that I don't have a lot of talents. I just, it's just basically this that I know how to do given my upbringing and my, uh, in my opportunities and karma yoga says fine just do a great job of that <laughs> right and you too but it it takes on board the entire system when the entire system is maybe the problem right and that's the inside of bhakti yoga that the that when and this is also part of the 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 narrative of that krishna gives in the gita too like there are times when the system becomes so corrupt it has to get re reset Right. That's the and whole then, point. And then that's that's when bhakti yoga devotion to Ishra comes in because it's that devotion to this ideal of what it is for us to be people that will allow us to reset the system. Okay. Right? Because everything else is going to be selfish and motivated by corrupt concerns. But this insight into what we have in common and what we all need is something universal mm -hmm. that can that will is the only thing we have going for resetting the system. <laughs> Can I can I ask you just to go back? I, I know we we're spending okay. a lot of time here. But just let's go back to Ishvara for a minute because I think that really the way you're defining Ishvara is so different than the way it's traditionally like well modern in modern times being translated. Yeah. I think it it changes the entire message of these teachings for um, sure. You're talking about it as an, the ideal, uh, the ideal other person. Or what did you say? You, so, you said uh, uh, so. Ishra is a person. So, so Ishra, so a person in the yoga in in yoga is an abstraction from life that allows that individual to assess their life. So the reason why you're a person is that you need to call upon this abstraction of you when you are deliberating and making choices. Mm -hmm. And then Ishra is kind of like the ideal of what it is to be a person. Uh, but, but it also fits the criterion of what it is to be a person. Namely, it's a, this kind of abstraction from which you could evaluate choices. So, so how come every, uh, other people are translating it as mm, God or as like, or I've heard it like your individual uh, perception of God? I mean, yeah, is that that's horrible. That's absolutely hard. That is absolutely the people who do that are so well, I think there's a couple of things that goes on. First of all, people are interpreting that is they're using their own beliefs as a frame mm -hmm. uh, to explain the Yoga Sutra. And so when they come across Ishra, uh, Ishra yeah. is someone that you can, you know, there's a sense in which you would pray to Ishra, right? There's a sense in which you would be devoted to Ishra, not unlike how theists are devoted to God. But there's an important difference. Theism is the idea, theism is a version of virtue ethics. And virtue ethics says you have to find a good person and uh, their choices or their inclinations are what you should be doing. So, so for the theist, you got to go find God who will tell you what to do. 
Mm-hmm. Yoga is the opposite of virtue ethics. So yoga says you don't you don't you don't put the good first. The good comes afterwards. First you should put the right, which is about choosing an activity. And Ishra is the ideal of what it is to choose an act. And then if you're devoted to that ideal of choosing and acting, over time you transform your own performance so that you exemplify those traits yourself. So in the case of Ishra, devotion to Ishra is about you taking responsibility for what it is to be a person. Now, in this tradition, they were very clear about Ishra being just that, that devotees basically became, in a way, Hmm. the Lord themselves. There's a long tradition of viewing devotees this way, right? Um, So I think when... People nowadays look at the Yoga Sutra, they, they assume a theistic backdrop, they, re, they see Ishra, they, they read it as God, the familiar notion of God. And if they, are, if they have some kind of revulsion or aversion to that idea, they, um, they'll just translate it in a way that... You know, so like your individual idea of God, that's like a libertarian... Uh, that's the kind of thing that someone who didn't like theism would say without mm-hmm. understanding what the alternatives were, right? So I think mm-hmm. all of these are just kind of unfortunate projections onto the text. If you actually look at what it says about Ishra, it defines Ishra as like untouched by the you know past choices, stories of choices, etc., and the, also the unafflicted. Supreme, the, the supreme Purusha. The well, it is it is a special Purusha. Yeah. Uh, it says uh, it's a special pusha. It's uh, unsurpassing. Okay, so there. I, so we're going back to um, that's book one. Book I think. one and Sutra twenty four. Uh, and you know the Lord is a special kind of person, untouched. And so it's um, vishesha uh, purusha vishesha. So vishesha means special, distinct. Yeah. So it's a distinct person, untouched by afflictions, actions, effects of actions, and stores of tendencies. Okay, so if you were to boil that down, you would find that there are two basic features, right? On the one hand, it's 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 not affected by its past, right? So it's it's not stuck in the past, but it's also not affected externally. There's nothing that stops it from calling its own shots. So Ishra then is a person defined by these traits of being unconservative and self-governing and uh, and it's you know the first teacher, etc. Now, I think all of that just means that like it, whenever we want to learn something, uh, whenever the first teachers wanted to when there were the first learners wanted to learn something, they had to cu- overcome their own past and be open to something new. That was good for them, right? And and so then personal progress and transformation is always going to be a version of Ishwar Pranidhana. There's always going to be some element of that. So, so what is your translation of the word then, Ishwar? Ishwar. Uh, so here I did the Lord. It's kind of a in my translation. Uh, but nowadays I use you're sovereignty. Saying, you're saying God. I mean – Well, okay. But what – so – so words are just words. <laughs> the question is, what are you put? What are you building into your your idea of that word, right? So nowadays I use the word sovereignty a lot. Sovereignty. Uh, I, I one of my students is a Brazilian philosopher, and he said that in 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 Portuguese, 
Lord just sounds horrible. It's like someone who's like a bully. And I said, well, how about sovereignty? And he was like, perfect. So sovereignty and philosophy is this idea of being in charge. Right. right. So if you right. are a sovereign, you are in you are in charge. So Ishra, so this is this mm. is completely consistent with the Sanskrit. It's it's the one in charge. So but mm. it's the one in charge as a person, right? So it's not the one who's actually calling the shots in your life. It's the one that you have to be it's the thing that you have to be devoted to in order to be sovereign. Um and that's that's the role that Ishra plays in the system. It plays the role as the ideal of choosing and acting. And so that's why when we come to book two, uh, we have, in addition to Ishra Prandana, devotion to Ishra, the Thapas and Swadhyaya, which are the which are the Kriyas that capture the two defining traits of mm-hmm. Ishra. Mm, I see. And so we never we never run into this God that we have to take notes from, right? That's not part of yoga. It's like- it's like your best self or something. It's like well, your... as you start to get over, as you start to practice, you start. Well, the whole point of Ishra Pranidana means approximating, right? Bringing yourself towards. Mm-hmm. So as you practice, you transform yourself into an increasingly sovereign version of you. Right. So you will start to. So you know, I use a music analogy as. When you want to learn how to play music, right, you don't know anything, but you have to formulate this ideal of music that you're going to be devoted to, and then that structures a practice. And then at first, you're bad. You're not good at it. What you do doesn't sound right. But given time, with commitment and devotion to this ideal, your practice transforms until it starts to exemplify the ideal that you were devoted to, right? And there's no end to that. Like the great musicians are people who are always devoted to that ideal. So even when they get to a certain stage of accomplishment, there's always more room for for devotional improvement. But that that's what structures that mm-hmm. process of transformation. So at some point, the practitioner starts to perform the very traits that they were devoted to. Mm. And that's that's when we bring about, that's when our the good in our life starts to starts to really be ob- obvious to other people. Okay. I, I guess we've <laughs> <laughs> I know we've gone longer than we're supposed to, but um, yeah, that was amazing. Um, gosh, well, I'm going to, I'm about to order your, your translation of the sutras because I need to. <laughs> All right. Good. Well, I mean, well, you know, we can talk again. <laughs> if you're yeah, on to it. Talk again, I, I think I'll definitely reach out when I have questions regarding my book. And yeah, it was such it was like so refreshing to talk to you. And I mean, yeah, I feel very relieved. <laughs> well, thank you so much for the opportunity. It's yeah, great talking to you. you. It's lovely and, connecting yeah. to people who think about yoga. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I feel the same way. And people can find you at um, yogaphilosophy.com. Is that right? Yeah, and on Instagram, I'm um, at yogaphilosophy underscore com. Okay. Thank you, Sham. Thanks so much for your time and for that. That was amazing. Okay. Take care. Thank you, Jeevna. Bye-bye. 
Thanks for joining us for another week of the Accessible Yoga Podcast. We hope you'll come over to our website, AccessibleYogaTraining.com, where you can see everything we're up to, including our flagship Accessible Yoga Training online, where you can join a wait list for any upcoming courses we have. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love it if you'd leave us a review. We really value your feedback, and we're continuing to improve just a little bit more each week. So thanks to all of you who are subscribing and leaving reviews. We really value it and we hope this podcast is helpful to you. Let us know what questions you have or what topics you'd like us to cover, speakers you'd like us to invite in the future. You can send us a note at accessibleyogatraining.com. Thanks for everything. We'll see y'all next week. Bye.